I think that circuses are quite literally one of the most significant aspects of American history and that they really formed America's values and interests that we see today. It's one of the most hedonistic, over-the-top expressions of American exceptionalism from P.T. Barnum to the entirety of the circus boom because, yeah, just like the housing market and the dot-com bubble, circuses experienced a massive boom at one point that saturated their market. The enduring fascination that we have with the concept of traveling shows and life under the big top is something that I'm a little bit obsessed with. So this week, we're heading back to the Midwest, Baraboo, Wisconsin to be exact, to the World Circus Museum. The number you have dialed is not in service at this time. The number you have dialed has been changed. The new number is... Welcome to Interstate Odyssey. I'm your host, Sophie Peterson. If you like learning about obscure, fantastical, and even some potentially haunted places throughout America, you've come to the right place. Each week, I'll be covering different roadside attractions throughout the United States. The good, the bad and the absolutely strange. If I was fully in control of the road trips me and my family would take when I was a child, They would take 10 days instead of 10 hours. I was always a kid that would spot a sign on the side of the road and beg my parents to stop off to see just what was going on. My little sister, Claudia, and I have always been interested, no, obsessed, with historic cemeteries, dusty antique markets, and roadside attractions. So between the two of us, we would usually be able to convince my parents to stop at at least a handful of places during our yearly pilgrimage to my mom's hometown in southwest South Dakota. However, in spite of the fact that we would travel through Baraboo, Wisconsin every year on our trip, and even stop there sometimes to go to lunch, I have never been to the World Circus Museum. When I tell you that I love circus history, I'm underplaying my interest. The amount of space in my brain that is taken up by the history of the circus, its importance and omnipotence in American culture and society from the 1800s onward, and how much I fucking hate the movie The Greatest Showman is embarrassing. When I was just a little so I went to the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus back in the 90s when they were still using animals and My god, what a spectacle. More than the show itself, though, I remember poring over the promotional book that they were selling at one of the several kiosks outside of the show. Saying it was outside of the show makes it sound like I actually saw the circus at a big top when I'm almost positive it was actually at the United Center. Anyways, my fascination with this promotional book and the fact that I've always been in super close proximity to a museum that's all about something I'm literally obsessed with, I figured I owed it to myself, and I guess y'all as well, that I should do this episode on the Circus World Museum in Baraboo, Wisconsin. (laughs) 
alongside information about the Circus World Museum that came from the museum's website and Wikipedia, I relied heavily on the two-part documentary released by the PBS series American Experience that was all about the history of the circus, featuring interviews from performers, attendees, and historians to gain more insight into this secret world. Also, this goes without saying, but we made it to episode five, and even though this is like incredibly entertaining making these podcasts, I need some validation from y'all, so Please, if you haven't already, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Interstate Odyssey wherever you're listening. We're officially live on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Deezer, Pocket Cast, and Podcast Addict. Thank you to everyone who's listened to the first episodes during the premiere. Like, I, I really can't thank you enough, and I can't wait to make more content for you. And if you like it, tell your friends. Everyone wants to learn about roadside attractions and the circus, not just you. Don't be withholding. Since I live in a Midwestern bubble, it's unclear to me whether or not everyone knows that Wisconsin is a land that's replete with many wonders. Many of them being different types of cheese, specifically cheese curds. Being that I'm from their direct rival state, Illinois, Wisconsin and I have had a tenuous relationship. But honestly, their high-quality cheese is worth keeping them around. That, and the fact that it's home to some of the best roadside attractions in the United States. A few weeks ago, I covered the coolest, weirdest, K-hole of a place ever, House on the Rock, which is not too far from the place we'll be talking about today. It's so close, in fact, that Baraboo, home to the Circus World Museum and hometown of the Ringling Brothers, is located in the same swath of land known as the Driftless. If you want to hear more about what's up with the Driftless and why it's such a strange area, check out episode one. But... The Circus World Museum and thusly Baraboo are located just barely inside of the Driftless territory. For a quick recap, the Driftless is the area of land that went untouched by the glaciers that flattened the surrounding area and just might have some supernatural energy around it. Anyways, Baraboo is located in south-central Wisconsin and is only like 20 minutes south of Wisconsin Dells, which my mom used to always remark that people in the Midwest refer to it as just the Dells, as if it's our version of the Hamptons, which if you think having 30 giant water parks in one concentrated landlocked area is similar to the Hamptons, then I mean, I, I guess it is. If nothing else, this podcast will educate those of you who do not come from the Midwest on our rich and unique culture. An anecdote that workers at Circus World like to share is that Baraboo was founded in 1882, and the Ringling Brothers Circus was founded a year later, so there's literally no Baraboo without a circus. And even though this happened almost 150 years ago now, the circus's spot in American history is super relevant. Oftentimes, circuses introduced recorded sounds, electricity, automobiles, and many turn-of-the-century innovations that a wider American audience had never even seen before. I think a lot of millennials and Zoomers like myself have a fascination with circuses because they kind of creep us out. We weren't really around for a lot of circuses as we used to know them, so the most relevant images we have of them are from shows like American Horror Story, which... I don't understand why there are so many recently made movies and TV shows about the circus, but they all suck. Like, American Horror Story Freak Show was 
decent and the ensemble cast was really good but there was this random singing and I don't know I just have yet to see a really good representation of what the circus was like because I mean the greatest showman is literally insulting the only redeeming aspect of the movie is a couple of the songs the rest of it can go one circus movie that wasn't too bad was Water for Elephants. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I'm obsessed with Chaotic King Robert Pattinson, and the production actually utilized the many carriages that are on display in the Circus World Museum. It's also a really good book. There's areas throughout the Circus World Museum with displays of female mannequins on life-size elephant replicas, which make this place begin to blur into House on the Rock. Both of them seem like they're out of a dream, but the Circus Museum feels like the beginning of the dream, where it's more clear and cohesive. Plus, it has way more context, given that its information plaques at each different exhibit are still up and available. Even so, I don't know, maybe these places are just like portals of some sort, because these expansive warehouse-sized buildings filled with ephemera just create such a specific mood. Mannequins wearing decades-old costumes, canned music, animal replicas. But to its credit, the museum looks like it has pretty brightly lit rooms, which are reassuring and a stark departure from places like House on the Rock. Hornet Solo Carnival of Venice with variations. So, Baraboo Circus World Museum was placed in a very deliberate spot. It's the actual home and former winter quarters of the Ringling Brothers Circus. You can tell that it used to really be the home of the performers and animals and supplies because there are telltale signs like busted up concrete from where elephants smashed into the walls. Wisconsin literally regards Circus World Museum as their national treasure. No, treasure. And it's been owned and operated by the Wisconsin Historical Society for years, and it's been in the National Registry of Historic Places since 1969. Circus World is comprised of six different sections that make up the entire museum. They are Ringlingville, the Irving Feld Exhibit Hall, the Hippodrome, the W.W. Depp Wagon Pavilion, the C.P. Fox Wagon Restoration Center, and the Robert L. Parkinson Library and Research Center. I know that's a lot to remember, but we'll just start with Ringlingville. Ringlingville is the part of the museum that consists of the six remaining buildings of the original wintering grounds of the Ringling Brothers Circus. There are originally eight buildings on site, but now we just have six. And it's registered as a National Historic Landmark. This is where you'll see those telltale signs of animals that used to live in these quarters. Buildings in Ringlingville include the Ring Barn, the Elephant House, Animal House, Baggage Horse Barn, Winter Quarters Office, and the Wardrobe Department. Tours are given in Ringlingville and feature a behind-the-scenes look at how performers prepared for shows and what Winter Quarters looked like. There's apparently a barn on the property that they used solely to hold their money back in the day. Like, it was a barn stacked to the top with cash because they were like the Bill Gates of the circus world. I, I find it absolutely insane that throughout the mid to late 1800s and early 1900s, the United States had their own circus bubble, just like the internet. And the circus was this massively popular new outlet to get rich, but much like other capitalistic endeavors throughout history, only a few came out on top. And just like the dot-com bubble, the circus had their own version of Silicon Valley, Baraboo, Wisconsin. 
Back in its heyday, more than 100 circuses were operating out of Wisconsin alone. The next spot in the museum is the Irvenfeld Exhibit Hall, which is really the epicenter of the museum, with artifacts and exhibits showcasing the history of the Ringling Brothers Circus and circuses throughout America, especially the circus boom, or what we refer to as the golden age of the circus that took place at the turn of the century. Think late 1800s. This is where you can get a really good idea of just how popular the circus was in America before silent films became people's preferred form of entertainment. By the by, Irvin Feld, you know, the guy whose name is on this section, was actually a record store owner and producer in the 1940s and 50s who was credited with discovering popular crooner Paul Anka. You know, put your head on my shoulder, the original writer of My Way. So. Now, he had discovered the guy who would go on to create the original Tonight Show theme song, Feld wanted to branch out. In 1967, he literally bought the circus. As in, he paid $8 million to purchase the Ringling Brothers Circus. A year later, he opened the Ringling Brothers Circus Clown College, which is like apparently the Harvard of clown colleges. I'm not kidding. Then, he went on to sell the circus and buy it back again from Mattel. Yes. For a short period of time, Barbie owned the circus, to the tune of $50 million. So, long story short, this guy had a ton of money and loved the circus so much he bought it, and honestly, we're better off for it, because now we have resources like this museum to help us illustrate why the circus was so damn popular. Circus World Museum holds the largest collection of circus materials in the world, including circus wagons, posters, photography, and artifacts used by shows from all over the United States. The museum also has smaller collections of Wild West shows and carnival materials. The museum also has smaller collections of Wild West shows and carnival materials. It has exhibits that cover nearly 150 years of circus history, beginning in 1836 and going all the way up to the 1970s. Looking at the posters and advertisements in this exhibit hall make it feel like they were selling a ticket for all of the Avengers movies at once plus Lollapalooza afterwards. And I mean, from what I can tell, a trip to the circus didn't disappoint. Without any television or even film at the time, Going to the circus was exposing yourself to a world that you wouldn't regularly have seen if you were from the middle of nowhere in America. Oftentimes, people would get their first and sometimes only look at a room fully powered by electricity, or a motorized vehicle whirring around the ring. Like now, when we see posters, a lot of us are struck by the elaborate costumes and death-defying performances, when in reality, many audience members were completely blown away by being able to see the massive generators that powered the big top. There was also an incentive to joining the circus that was not available anywhere else. Freedom. There are often anecdotes about running away to the circus, and back then, people really did. Especially those who didn't fit in with society, they were drawn to the idea of this counterculture of performers and artists that called the circus home, what with the strict morals and values that rural America had embraced at the time. And you have to remember, 
traveling circuses were often met with outrage and pushback from religious groups and local parishes in the towns that they traveled through during their inception. Between the scantily clad performers and the idea of wasting one's time with a leisure activity, the circus was a modern-day Sodom and Gomorrah in the eyes of preachers and clergymen. This was in part because of the religious revival that the United States saw at the beginning of the 1800s, and even towards the end of the 19th century, many religious groups still clung to the ideas of labor equaling salvation and a general rejection of anything that didn't directly relate to work, church, or the Bible. And this was a time when it was scandalous for a woman to show anything more really than a saucy ankle, which meant acrobats in shorts and tights were an attractor in and of itself. So, with a vocal opposition making themselves known in these small towns where the circus wanted to tour through, the early showmen of the 1820s had to come up with a workaround. And they found that workaround in animal menageries. We can thank religious fanaticism for the performing animals and displays that so often accompanied traveling circuses, because getting the opportunity to see exotic animals that were featured in the Bible, like the blood-sweating behemoth, aka a hippopotamus, drew even the most dogmatic to the big top, for educational purposes, of course. In the 1800s, showrunners even shied away from using the term circus and instead employed terms like traveling museum or menagerie. And that's not to say that the circus was always a wholesome show made for children as we now know it today. Downright cinematic feuds, tragedies, and scandals from the circus were front page stories that gripped the public. Lillian Leitzel, perhaps the most famous acrobat of the early 1900s, showed the world how incredibly hazardous feats that acrobats and aerialists performed could be. She was regarded as one of the most captivating, talented performers, making nosebleed seats feel like the front row with her larger-than-life shows on the Roman rings, flipping and flying across the air alongside her fiery affair with her husband and fellow acrobat, Alfredo Cadona. In 1931, at a Barnum and Bailey show, to audiences' surprise and horror, Lillian fell in the middle of a performance due to faulty rigging. She died two days later from the injuries sustained in the fall. Less than a year later, her husband, Alfredo Cadona, went on to marry another circus performer, Vera Bruce, and shortly after they married, he shot her and himself in an apparent murder-suicide. The newspapers attributed this murder to him never recovering from Lillian's tragic death. The circus was a place that provided wonder and entertainment for audiences, but often held much darker stories and secrets under the big top. If seeing all of these artifacts and information in the Irvinfeld exhibit hall hasn't quite immersed you in the world of the circus, fear not. That just means it's time to check out the Hippodrome. That's right, the Circus World Museum literally still has a big top, with performances running daily, featuring magicians, live animal performers, and, of course, clowns. This is where the museum goes a little bit Tiger King on us, because yes, you heard that correctly, a big part of their performances feature animals, which is becoming increasingly rare due to animal rights activism and just public opinion shifting about keeping animals in captivity for entertainment. I mean, at this point, we've all seen Tiger King. A quote from the museum said this about their animal performers. 
Circus World believes that positive, healthy environments are vital for working animals. The animals featured at Circus World during the summer are fed, watered, groomed, and cleaned daily with access to the area's best veterinary care. Each fall, we offer our elephant manure to any area farmer or home gardener, and any donation they choose to make to Circus World is greatly appreciated. We've had it tested, and it's excellent fertilizer for gardens. It also mentions that the animals are only on site during the summer performance season. I'm certainly ambivalent about the use of animals in any setting like this. I don't know, I feel like the current mood aligns with my feeling toward it too, which is just uncomfortable, even with the reassurance that the animals are well taken care of. Even so, animals are a huge part of the circus world, and as I mentioned before, they became a great way to work around the ultra-religious community members in the towns that circuses toured through. But, like, I'll say it a third time, if you've seen Tiger King, you know that getting animals for an attraction that involves them performing or just generally being around humans is not as glamorous or as warm and fuzzy as it seems. One of the most heartbreaking aspects of the circus is that many of the animals that were used in the late 19th and early 20th century were purchased and shipped across the world from their homelands, and since it was far easier to ship a tiny cub instead of a full-grown lion or bear, entire packs of animals trying to protect their young would sometimes be wiped out in pursuit of just one baby. The rate of survival for these babies was incredibly low during their journey to the United States, so of course, just like today, exotic animals were coveted by many. And the more animals you had for your spectacle, the more successful your circus would be. Before we move on from the animals and the circus and their usually just generally crap lives that they had to endure for people's entertainment, I just wanted to mention the most famous animal performer of them all. Jumbo the Elephant. You're probably thinking, oh, they named him Jumbo because he's big, right? No, Jumbo was so big that his name came to represent big things. He literally preceded the adjective as we now know it. He's basically the most famous elephant of all time. Like, so famous that when he was alive, people used to use his name as a word to describe other things, and everyone just knew what they meant by it. He was purchased by P.T. Barnum from the London Zoo, which they were quite salty about at the time, and was considered one of the largest performing elephants of all time because he was a male elephant and most circus elephants were female and significantly smaller. He ended up getting taxidermied by the guy who basically invented taxidermy as we now know it, Carl Akeley. But stuffed Jumbo was destroyed in a fire, sadly. He's also the Tufts University mascot. If you make it to the Circus World Museum, there are multiple references to him. Jumbo also illustrates how P.T. Barnum was really the king of the grifters, though, because even when Jumbo died, he tried to make it sound like it was because of Jumbo's heroic rescue attempt of another animal from getting hit by a train, which just wasn't true. The animals needed some way to get from place to place, and the construction of railroad lines across the United States is what made the traveling circus possible, and definitely why it became such a massive enterprise. At the height of their fame, the Ringling Brothers Circus traveled in a hundred car train around the country. Even if you didn't get to see a show, you would without a doubt know that the circus was in town. Like, it would quite literally come trundling into town on hundreds of massive wagons and pony floats filled with performers and animals. 
If you're wondering what happens to all of these ornately gilded and painted wagons from the old film reels of yesteryear, you'll find more of them at Circus World Museum than anywhere else. Circuses unrelated to the Ringling Brothers even send their old floats to Baraboo to have them restored. There's the W.W. Depp Wagon Pavilion, which is the area dedicated to circus wagons, a key aspect of circuses from the time they began. Not only did these floats and wagons carry the performers and animals, but they also helped to advertise the upcoming shows when the circus would literally roll into town. This area features pony floats from the Ringling Brothers Circus, big gold parade floats with fully gilded statues portraying vignettes of different fairy tales. At the World Circus Museum, I believe they actually have three Ringling Originals. Nine were supposedly made, but seven are confirmed to exist. That sounds like a riddle. Anyways, Cinderella, the old woman who lived in a shoe, and Mother Goose are the only surviving pony floats. If that's not enough wagon and float content, the CP Fox Wagon Restoration Center has you covered. This has become a major preserver of circus history. Guests can also see wagons being restored in real time by master craftsmen. The 2011 film adaptation of the book Water for Elephants by Sarah Gruen featured some of these wagons and floats on their set. Last, but not least, is the Robert L. Parkinson Library and Research Center. This is the place that is probably the most unassuming, but where I would be most excited to visit. It's a library dedicated to research and documentation of circus history, consisting of archives, photos, books, even century-old sound recordings, literally all things circus. It's open and free to the public when the museum is open, and you can bet the minute the pandemic is over, this library will be at the top of my list for places to visit. Actually, the corresponding section on their website that gives you access to archived circus advertisements and original posters almost derailed this entire episode. I literally could not tear myself away from clicking through every one of them. They're so cool. Many archive posters feature wacky illustrations on their advertisements, especially during the golden age of the circus, with vicious competition generating ads proclaiming forgery or swindling by their rival traveling circuses. Seriously, look them up. I'll put some on Interstate Odyssey Instagram for everyone to see too, so if you aren't already following, go do that now. So, we know that a lot of scheming, death-defying acts, and exotic animals make for a successful circus, but what, or more importantly, who was behind the greatest show on Earth? Well, there are actually like four big circus factions to know. You got the Wisconsin Ringling Brothers, Adam Fortpaw, who was like one of the early 1800s originals, and James A. Bailey. But we'll start with the one you probably all know. Phineas Taylor Farnham. Born in 1810, P.T. Barnum was basically the OG of circuses and curiosities and was just the scammer of the century. He called himself the Prince of the Humbugs, which means he was the prince of deceiving people and trickery. And the quote, A sucker is born every minute, has been attributed to him. Back when circuses first became a thing in the United States, P.T. Barnum saw an opportunity for himself to build an entertainment empire, what with the Industrial Revolution being in full swing, along with the Progressive Era, which saw the first opportunities for working-class people to have leisure time. 
In the early 1800s, he had purchased Scudder's American Museum, as well as began a traveling show called the Barnum's Grand Scientific and Musical Theater. This is where he was able to rake in the cash with his hoaxes. Rhinoceri were advertised as unicorns. A taxidermy monkey that was connected to the lower half of a fish was called the Fiji Mermaid. Circuses are definitely part of tourist trap culture. I mean, promise everything, deliver literally whatever you want. And though giving animals fantastical names and backstories was generally a harmless scam, P.T. Barnum will forever be remembered as the guy who really created an industry on the backs of people who were deemed other by society. He kicked this off with the exploitation of Joyce Heth, an elderly enslaved black woman from Madagascar, who he paraded around the country as a living marvel, saying that she was 161 years old and cared for George Washington when he was a boy. And I mean, it would be an insult to spin this any other way than calling this direct exploitation of another human being. It blows my mind that a movie like The Greatest Showman could be made where P.T. Barnum is seen as this kindly, ambitious family man because, let's be frank, he was a money-hungry scammer. And that's not even a function of PC culture. If you spend more than 10 minutes reading about the shit this guy pulled back in his heyday, you'll find there's really no room for argument that he was not a kind, selfless dude. After touring Joyce Heth in bars, taverns, and theaters, the public began to lose interest, so... Barnum fanned the flames of interest in a way that was even more shameless than family YouTuber thumbnails. He wrote to publications under his pseudonym, claiming that he, P.T. Barnum, was lying, and that Joyce Heth was not, in fact, 161 years old. Instead, she was a robot, or an automaton, as that was a term at the time. Of course, this story is now told as an illustration of what a great salesman P.T. Barnum was, which, what? People will still be like, he built a hospital, and it's like, well, yeah, I mean, Jeff Bezos gave us two-day prime shipping, but he's still an awful person who exploits his workers. They actually probably have a lot to talk about with each other. The circus consisted of various acts, typically including animal performers, acrobats, and other feats of human strength and agility. Clowns, sideshow attractions, uh, these skills ranged from having fire breathers to ventriloquists to trapeze artists. But in the earlier days of the circus, much thanks to P.T. Barnum, there was also a sideshow section, colloquially known as the Freak Show. This is probably the most referenced element of circuses in contemporary culture mainly because of how disturbing and taboo we find this practice today. We remember the display of performers that were, more often than not, people with disabilities put on display for the entertainment of onlookers as curiosities and oddities. I think a lot of circus historians attempt to reconcile these practices by arguing that the sideshows were a way that people with disabilities or deemed to other for society were able to empower themselves by making a living from the circus and having an opportunity to form bonds with a community that they would have otherwise not had access to. I think that taking into account the autonomy that the performers had is really important, and not doing so diminishes them as people and performers. And I also think it needs to be said that these performers were 
often given little to no other opportunities to make money elsewhere. But some of the most notable figures in circus history were freak show performers who honed their performance skills and became beloved celebrities of their era. Like Charles Stratton, who played a character named General Tom Thumb in P.T. Barnum's circus, who stood about three and a half feet tall, is now seen as a monolith of mid-1800s entertainment and vaudeville, and was one of the most beloved performers in circus history. He was able to successfully chip away at the narrative of how Americans viewed freak show performers, and like to this day, performers and actors with disabilities are being discriminated against even when attempts are made to illustrate these darker aspects of the circus history, going so far as actors with disabilities' likenesses being used for inspiration and copied on non-disabled actors without their consent in films like, you guessed it, The Greatest Showman which was released in 2017 and was starring Hugh Jackman. And it just, it attempts to morph actual people's stories into this weird inspiration porn about how the benevolent family man, P.T. Barnum, helped uplift the performers with disabilities and facial differences, which was simply not true. I think they really, like, actually called him the king of the misfits at one point. It's weird. And this particular movie failed to cast almost any actors with disabilities or facial differences. Carly Finlay wrote a really illuminating article about the production of The Greatest Showman and what it got right and wrong, and representation of actors with disabilities in film and the historical context of the circus, and and honestly, it lays a lot of this out much better than me. So I'll link her article on Interstate Odyssey Instagram as well. P.T. Barnum died in the 1870s, which is around the time that the circus was reaching the peak of its golden age. P.T. Barnum, for better or worse, laid the blueprint of how circuses should be set up, advertised, and financed, and America wanted more. By the 1880s, five brothers decided it was their turn to take a crack at the hot new industry, and the Ringling Brothers Circus was born, in Baraboo, Wisconsin, of course. These brothers, who had started their namesake, the Ringling Brothers Circus, which came to be known as the greatest show on earth, at one point managed the three largest circuses in history at the same time. Ringling Brothers Circus, Barnum Circus, and Bailey Circus. You now probably know them as one amalgamation of all three, Ringling Brothers, Barnum, and Bailey Circus. The Ringling Brothers were born in McGregor, Iowa, with the oldest brother Alfred born in 1852. The five brothers, in order of age, were Albert, Augustus, Otto, Alfred, known as Alf, Charles, and John. They also had a sister named Ida who was involved in the circus business, but the Ringling Brothers plus one sister wasn't as catchy of a name. Also, I just learned that there were two bonus brothers that weren't involved, and honestly, I I have no idea what happened to them. As children, they moved from Iowa to Baraboo, Wisconsin, which would be known as their home base and the home of the greatest show on earth. And by May 19, 1884, they officially started their endeavor with a troop consisting of 21 people, three horses, and inexplicably, a hyena. Like, where did he come from? They had originally started as a troop of brothers who did variety shows, skits, and juggling routines, so they were basically improv performers turned circus organizers. 
which honestly, I think that had an effect on their success that they began their careers as people who wanted to perform, not just sell tickets. As I mentioned before, at their height, they traveled in a hundred car train and had a big top that could seat 10,000 curious onlookers, drawing crowds for multiple nights at each stop they made across the country. Their success is also attributed to the unity that they had on decision-making and the ability to delegate different tasks to each brother. And this totally makes sense. Having five or six people to carry the responsibilities of running a massive show would be indispensable. And five people who are unified in a decision would be unstoppable. Not long after starting their One Ring show, they invested in another premier circus of the time, P.T. Barnum's rival, Adam Forpaugh. He was dead, so by the time that they bought it, it was actually owned by James A. Bailey, who was the last living titan of the circus world. They made a deal with him, that they would effectively stay out of each other's way and perform on different routes. When Bailey died in 1906, the Ringling Brothers purchased his circus, along with the second half of the four-paw circus that Bailey had owned making them the owners of the three largest circuses that were currently operating. Throughout the late 1800s and early 1900s, the circus had America hypnotized, being a massively popular event that would help shape the way Americans consumed entertainment. Everyone clamored for the opportunity to see trapeze artists defy gravity and would do just about anything to get a ticket. One of the ways that Big Tops could be quickly set up was to employ the local children in whatever town the circus was inhabiting and give them a ticket for helping set up. Like, children were responsible for assembling a giant tent that would have thousands of people under it, which just makes me think it's a miracle that there weren't more mishaps under the Big Top. By the onset of World War I in 1914, the circus was beginning to lose its luster and half of the audience and performers had either been drafted or enlisted in the military. This, coupled with the innovation of cinema and silent films, lowered the interest in circuses to a point that many were unable to continue operating. Audiences chose the comfort and value of a movie theater seat where they could watch death-defying feats for half the price of a live performance. This led the big circuses to basically merge into one, known as the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus, in 1919. By then, the golden age of the circus was waning, and the golden age of Hollywood was just beginning. America's interest in the circus was nowhere near over, and they had just found a different outlet. Between 1920 and 1960, there were like 25 movies made about the circus, Life Under the Big Top, Famous Circus Performers, and Ringmasters. The last Ringling Brothers circus show held under a traveling big top was in 1957. From that performance onward, they would be held at stadiums and already established venues. Hence, me remembering my experience at the circus being at the United Center and not in a tent. But like I mentioned before, if you want a real big top experience, you can still visit the World Circus Museum in Baraboo to get a taste of what it was like a century ago. Currently, because of COVID, Live performances are not being held for the safety of workers and performers, but when everyone gets access to the vaccine, I for one cannot wait to visit a living memorial to one of the most unique pieces of American history. 
My hope is that in 2021, I'll be able to start traveling to some of the roadside attractions I haven't visited yet to be able to do even more in-depth research. But for now, I'm still typing away at my kitchen table. If you have any stories about the circus or World Circus Museum in Baraboo or any thoughts about it, I'd love to hear about it. You can email me at interstateodyssey at gmail.com. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, which I hope to God you did because you made it all the way to the end, <laughs> leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe and follow me on Instagram at Interstate Odyssey to get updates about new episodes and details that didn't make it into the episodes. This has been a transmission of Interstate Odyssey, Episode 5.